Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We come to the last portion of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 beginning in verse 12 and I'll read through the end of the chapter. Please give God's word your full attention. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. As the Protestant Reformation was spreading through Europe in the late late 1500s, a group of theologians got together in northern Germany and produced a teaching tool that we call the Heidelberg Catechism. This was a tool that had the purpose of teaching systematic biblical theology by the method of questions and answers. In that Heidelberg Catechism, question number two asks, what is the key to living and dying happily? That's an important question to ask in life. What is the key to living and dying happily? The answer, according to the Heidelberg Catechism, is that we need to, in order to do that, we need to know three things. This is a great key to life, so listen carefully. The three things you need to know to live and die happily. Number one, first, the greatness of my sin, and misery, my sin and misery, the greatness of my sin and misery. That's a very surprising start to know how to live happily, isn't it? To know the greatness of your sin and misery. Secondly, how I am redeemed from my sin and misery. And then third, how I am to be thankful to God for such a redemption. Very, very simple, but the key to living a happy life. Knowing the greatness of your sin and misery, how you are redeemed from your sin and misery, and then how you are to be thankful to God for such a redemption. In other words, once you come under the deep conviction of sin before God, and you are aware of how much you have offended His holiness and the depth of your guilt, And then, after you have come to know by the word of God 
how he has sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us through his death on the cross in our place, then your whole life becomes about how do you live thankfully for what he has done for you. As I reflected on this, I thought about how salvation is by grace is the central thing that distinguishes the one true religion from every false religion. Every other religion that man has come up with has us doing at least something significant in order to be saved. In Judaism or Islam or the variety of cults that are out there, they teach that we are saved by our good works. In the Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, they teach that we are saved by seeking enlightenment or spiritual awareness and gaining good karma. In other words, doing good works. But in Christianity, we find out that we can do nothing to save ourselves. We have nothing to offer to God. Nothing that we can do for God that will save us. As the scriptures teach, salvation is of the Lord. It's hard for us, I think, especially as Americans, to grasp this as a central driving thought for life. We are taught in our Declaration of Independence that everyone is born into this world with inalienable rights. And while that is true among men, we must begin and understand our lives by the fact that we have no rights before God. That we have given up all rights through our sinfulness. We are born sinners guilty of Adam's sin and day upon day we pile upon our record of sinfulness, the ways in which we have broken God's law by thought, word, and deed. In our natural state, we deserve God's wrath for all eternity and we have nothing good to offer to God to make him favorable towards us. This view of our sin and misery, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, is a radical self-image in this culture where we are taught from the very earliest days that we are to be successful in life by having great and high self-esteem. But as believers, by the word of God, we know this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Seeing yourself as a sinful wretch who is saved by God's grace and God's grace alone through the cross of Jesus Christ changes your perspective on life at a foundational level. Your actions from that point on, if you truly grasp that and live by that truth, your actions become driven by a sense of absolute dependence upon the grace of God. And your driving motivation for all that you do in life is thankfulness to God for that grace. We are looking at the very final section of the book of 1 Thessalonians. And as is often the case, when Paul gets to the end of a letter that he's writing to the churches, he'll just give a long laundry list of instructions, important things that these churches need to remember. But it's important that you understand that as Paul is writing to these new believers in this new church and giving them these important instructions, these are not moralisms. These are not things that the Thessalonians must do in order to make God favorable to them. 
This is a description of how to live thankfully. What does a life of a sinner saved by grace look like if that sinner lives thankfully every moment of their lives? The first thing that Paul points us to is that grace changes how we respond to our leaders. In verses 12 and 13, we looked at these verses a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to elaborate on them this morning. But remember, Paul says, Respect those who are over you in the Lord and esteem them highly in love. I'll only add to what I said a couple weeks ago by saying that it is an understanding of the fullness of God's grace towards us and how undeserving we were of that grace that produces the kind of humility in us that will undo the pride that keeps us from submitting to and supporting and honoring and esteeming those who lead us. As we said a couple weeks ago, we are anti-authoritarian by nature, but by the grace of God, we are understanding what it means to be humble before God and the authorities that he has legitimately put over us, both in the family and the church as well as in the world. And so instead of our knee-jerk sinful reaction to authority, which is, who are you to tell me what to do? Grace teaches us to say, who am I to reject the authorities that God has placed over me for my good? Moving on, the second thing that Paul teaches us here is that grace teaches us how to respond to the needy. He says in verse 14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Seeing yourself as undeserving of all that is good in your life will make you much more sympathetic and much more generous towards the needy people around you. The focus here is on needy people in the church. Certainly all of this would translate to, be, to the needy people out there in the world. But the focus here, Paul is talking about how we treat needy people in our own spiritual family, in our own church. And as you look at these descriptions, those of you who have been in the family Sunday school class on Pilgrim's Progress will recognize these characters in, Paul, in, 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 the, in the Pilgrim's Progress who helped Christian on his journey evangelist and help and interpreter and faithful, how they came alongside Christian in times of need to help him to complete his journey of faith. Here Paul describes three types of fellow believers that we will encounter in our church, in every church. He says, first of all, admonish the idol. The Greek word he uses here is actually a military term. It literally means help those or admonish those who are out of step. In other words, the soldier who breaks rank. And a better translation probably than idle would be disorderly. Admonish the disorderly, those who are out of step with the rest of the church. And it may be, and I think the reason that, that translators tend to use the word idle here is because it may well be that Paul has in mind those who had stopped working back in chapter 4 that he addresses, those who had stopped working in expectation of Christ's coming. And they were living off of the kindness of other believers. Maybe those are the disorderly that he's thinking of. But I do think that he intends it more broadly than that. Any member of the church who is breaking ranks by being difficult, lazy, fighting with other believers, complaining, Paul says, admonish them. And admonishing in scripture means to teach and warn. 
to do so lovingly, to do so gently, to confront others with their disorderliness out of love and concern, not to ignore them because those who are disorderly are in need, but to come to them in the love of Christ with a humble understanding that the gra- of the grace that you have first received from Christ to admonish them. Secondly, encourage the faint-hearted. Those whose hearts are weak, those who are struggling emotionally or spiritually, those who are overwhelmed by family responsibilities or work or illness or finances, those whose faith is weak and they're losing their joy and hope, they've lost sight of their hope, encourage them, Paul says. Point them to Christ. Remind them of the hope that they've been given through the gospel. And then thirdly, Paul says, help the weak. And by the weak there, he means those who are both physically weak and disabled, as well as those who are spiritually weak. Those who are losing the battle against sin, those who are struggling with doubts, help the weak. The word help means to cling to them, come alongside them, bear the yoke with them, put your arm around them in their time of need. I couldn't help as I was studying these particular verses to think of probably one of the best cinematic uh, portrayals of what Paul is describing here I've ever seen in any movie was in the third Lord of the Rings movie, The Return of the King. Remember when Frodo, who was given the mission to take the evil ring and to destroy it at the top of Mount Doom, he gets to Mount Doom after his long and arduous journey and he's worn out. And he's beat up and he's been fighting the temptation to take the evil ring for himself and to possess it. And he gets partway up Mount Doom and he collapses. He's done. He can't go any further. He's about to give in to the temptation to possess the ring and to give up the mission. And his friend Samwise comes alongside him, takes him up in his arms, and he begins to remind him of the spring that would be coming in the Shire. He points them back to the hope of finishing the mission and being able to return to the joys of the Shire. And then you'll remember that famous line he says at the end, he says, Frodo, I can't carry the ring for you, but I can carry you. And he picks him up, puts him on his shoulder, and carries him up the mountain. Such a beautiful picture of what life in the church needs to be to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak. It's because we've been saved by grace. Paul doesn't say you need to do this so that God will be pleased with you. He says you need to do this because God has done so much for you. God came to you in your idleness and your disorderliness. God came to you in your faint-heartedness. God came to you in your weakness and showed you grace. What can you do for your brothers and sisters in the Lord? Paul says, be patient with them all. Be patient with each other. We live as sinners among other sinners in a spiritual family. We have to be patient with each other. Forbearance, long-suffering, a continual awareness of how God has been patient with you in your weakness, in your doubts, in your disorderliness, disorderliness and sin will motivate you to be patient with your fellow sinners. 
Psalm 103 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. He has been patient with you. Be patient with one another. Thirdly, Paul teaches us in this passage that grace changes how do you respond to the sins of others. When they affect you, when they hurt you, when they injure you. Look at verse 15. He says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. See, that's what grace teaches us. Grace frees us from the need for retaliation when someone hurts us, when someone offends us. Paul elaborates on this in Romans chapter 12, another one of those great long sections at the end of an epistle. And he says there, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. You see, grace, the gospel, releases us from needing to retaliate. It releases us from the drive to make sure that someone else pays for what they did to us, to offend us, to injure us. Yes, we believe in justice. Christians should be the strongest advocates for justice, for rights to be shown to be right and for wrongs to be made right. But we know that it's not our job, it's not our role to judge others for how they have committed acts of injustice. It's not our role to punish sin. We leave that to the Lord. And one day, he will fully punish sin. Either by causing everyone who has sinned against him, not against us, but against him ultimately, to cause everyone who has sinned against him in thought, word, or deed to pay for that for eternity, or to pardon those who have sinned like you and me because the blood of Christ has been shed on our behalf and that sin has already been punished at the cross. That frees us up. That understanding frees us up to not take revenge, to not retaliate when we're hurt. We who deserve the just wrath of God but who have received mercy undeserved must show that mercy to others. That's a basic teaching of Scripture. Jesus illustrated it so well when he told the story about the man who had been forgiven millions upon millions of dollars. And then Jesus in that story says that that man then went out and found another man, a friend of his, who owed him just a few dollars. And then he refused to forgive him. That man begged him for mercy and said, please give me time, I'll pay you back. And he refused and had him cast into jail. And we hear that story from Jesus and our immediate gut reaction is how could he not forgive this other man just a few dollars of debt when he had just been forgiven millions of dollars of debt? How could he? And then all of a sudden we say, oh, how could I not forgive my brother and my sister the offenses they have committed against me in light of how much my God has forgiven me? Grace transforms the way you view the offenses of others. I've been trying to share with you recently some phrases that I think have been lost in the dustbins of history that we need to bring out again and begin to use again to restore a new mindset. 
And one of the, another one of those phrases I want to share with you is there, but for the grace of God go I. That is a great phrase that's been well used through history and we've kind of forgotten it. It's a basic way of viewing life and viewing others and particularly viewing the sins of others. There, but for the grace of God, go I. Paul says, seek to do good to one another and to everyone. To one another, in other words, to other believers and to everyone, everyone outside the church. Do good. Because of the grace of God that's been shown to you, that is your mission now, is to do good to others. Even those who hurt you, those who violate you, those who disrespect and dishonor you. Do good to them. Grace teaches us to respond to the offenses of others by rejecting the thought, what does that person deserve for what they did to me? Instead, to think, what response for me would be for their good? And that good, of course, is defined by God, not by us or by our offender. What is good for that person? What response on my part will be the best response to bring good to that person? And often what is good for them will be very different from what they want, especially as you're dealing with people outside the church. They will want something that we know by the teaching of God's word is not good for them. And so for us to respond in a way that is good for them is to respond maybe in a way in which they don't want us to respond. But notice the motivation is not to give them what they deserve, but to give them what is good in God's eyes. The fourth thing that Paul teaches us in this passage is that grace changes how we respond to the trials of life. In verse 16, he addresses our overall attitude towards life. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Seeing every good thing in your life as an undeserved gift from God is the only way to obey these commands from the heart. It's the only way. Paul says rejoice always, always. Without exception, rejoice. Or as Paul more clearly says in Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. In other words, rejoice in the Lord, in his grace, not in what is always changing, which is your circumstances. The Lord in his grace never changes, but your circumstances are always changing. Throughout the rest of your life, your circumstances are going to be both good and bad. And there's a very good chance that the bad will outweigh the good in terms of your earthly life. But you rejoice in the Lord. When you start with the premise that you deserve eternal separation from God and everything that is good, if that is what you deserve in light of who you are and what you've done, it changes your perception of the difficult circumstances that you encounter in this life. Secondly, Paul says, pray without ceasing. It's another thing that will change your perception of your difficult circumstances. Pray without ceasing. Now, of course, Paul doesn't mean to chatter on with, to the Lord 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's not what he means. It means to live your life day in and day out with two realizations. First of all, that you live before the face of God at all times in every moment. You live before the face of God. He is with you. 
a continual awareness that he is present in every moment of your life because of the grace that's been shown to you in Jesus Christ. And secondly, he is sovereign over all your circumstances and you need to depend upon him for everything. Every good thing that you want in life, you depend upon him to provide it. God is always with you, and you depend upon him for everything good in your life. Those two awarenesses will produce a lifestyle that is prayer without ceasing. Continual prayer. Not verbalized much of the time. But a continual dependence upon the goodness of the Lord. And then finally, Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances. In all circumstances. That's the perspective of Romans chapter 8. Where Paul teaches that all things, good and bad, are woven together by our sovereign good for our ultimate good. By our sovereign God for our ultimate good. Even though we don't understand much of God's good plan, we know that it is a good plan. That it is the perfect will of God. And that our circumstances work together for our calling, for our justification, for our sanctification and our glorification. And some of our suffering is intended to benefit others. God uses the bad circumstances in our lives to bring us further along in our journey to glorification. And sometimes we understand that even when we can't understand what purpose the suffering has in our own life, and there always is a purpose in our own life, there is often a purpose in someone else's life. Reminds me of the story from The Hiding Place, the book written by Corey Ten Boom about her experiences having been imprisoned in a German concentration camp. There, of course, they were abused by soldiers. They lived in the midst of the filth of dirt and and uh, suffered with illness and lack of their material, physical needs being met. And one of the things that was bothering at some one point in their time in the, in the concentration camp was the abundance of fleas in their dormitory, so to speak. And they were having Bible study. They, they were able to bring a, have a Bible with them, and they were able to have a Bible study there. But yet these fleas were so annoying. And... Um, Corey Tenboom's sister Betsy reminded her that the Word of God teaches, and quoted the passage we're looking at this week, that we are to give thanks in all circumstances. And Corey responded by saying, I will never thank God for these fleas. I will never do it. But later, she says, we found out that the reason that the guards allowed them to have the Bible, or that they weren't aware that they had the Bible, and the reason that they weren't aware that they were leading Bible studies in their dormitory was because the guards didn't want to come in where the fleas were. And it was just a small, clear example and a lesson for Corey that sometimes our suffering has purposes that we can't see and we need to trust God. Even the negative things, the hurtful things, the hard things we face have purposes in his plan, sometimes for other people as well. And then the fifth thing that Paul teaches us about grace is that, fifth, that grace changes the way that we respond to the truth. Look at verses 19 and 20. He says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise the prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. In order to understand this section, you've got to understand where the Thessalonian Christians were in the history of redemption, where they were in the, new, in the very early stages of the, of the New Testament church. 
Thessalonians was one of the first letters written in the New Testament. So the church was just being formed, just being established. And the only Bible that the church had in the early days of the apostles was the Old Testament. The, this letter, obviously, is, is just new to them, and they wouldn't have been aware, and many of the letters of the New Testament wouldn't have been written yet. And so God, in his grace, to provide for his church truth, not only provided the teaching of the apostles, but he also provided what the New Testament calls prophets. These were believers who had a special gift, a temporary gift, of being able to receive direct revelation from God and then share it with God's people. This was a way of God providing for his people until the New Testament could be completed and they would have the whole revelation of God in the New Testament. But we know from other portions of the New Testament that, of course, it makes sense that anybody could claim to be giving a message from God. Anybody could be claiming, and a lot of false teachers did that. False teachers came into their midst saying, this is from the Lord, you need to listen to me. And it would be something that contradicted what the apostles taught or what the Old Testament taught. And so that's why Paul says here, don't despise the prophecies. When God gives you his word through his prophets, do not despise it. But be careful to test everything. Hold on to what's good. And the word good here means genuine or authentic. What is truly from God. And to abstain from or steer very clear of anything that is evil. But all of this is to say, if you want to live by grace... If you want the kind of lifestyle we're talking about, where you're constantly aware, not only that God is with you in terms of his presence with you, but he is for you in every possible way because of the work of Christ on the cross, not based on anything you've done, but what God has done through you, for you through Christ. The only way to maintain that way of thinking, because it's contrary to your own disposition, your fallen sinful nature and is contrary to the message you're getting from the world all around you. The only way to stay strong in a mindset of a sinner saved by grace is to be in the word continually. It's an important, we call the word a means of grace. That's how God's grace comes to you is you stay in the word daily so that you can maintain this mindset of living by grace. Grace teaches us to depend upon the word of God as it's given and illuminated by the Holy Spirit. To sum all this up, a lot of scattered teachings, but to sum it all up, let's go back to the Heidelberg Catechism, which says that thankfulness is the source of happiness. The documents of our nation tell us that we are given the right to pursue happiness, and the Heidelberg Catechism says Thankfulness is the path to happiness in life. Only Christianity explains how thankfulness can be and must be the motivation for all that we do. And of course, this all ends appropriately then with verses 24 and 25. This is my favorite benediction. I always share a benediction at the end of the service when I'm preaching. And this is my favorite one in all of Scripture. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. What a great ending to a long list of things that we need to be working hard to do in order to live by grace. Yes, if we are saved by grace, we need to honor and esteem our leaders. We need to be patient with the disorderly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. We need to forgive the offenses 
and do, of others and do good to all. We need to rejoice and pray and be thankful in all circumstances. And we see, need to seek to know God's word. Those are all things that require great effort on our part. But, Paul says, we can only do all that because of God's grace at work within us. It's his work, not ours, ultimately. He's the one who is doing it in us. And he is faithful and he will complete what he has promised. He who called you, who justified you, who is sanctifying you, who will glorify you, will complete his work because it's his work from beginning to end. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so Paul ends this letter, and he ends these instructions by saying in verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the reminder of what drives our pursuit of holiness, our evangelizing, our service. It's to be driven by thankfulness. And in that thankfulness, we find true joy and happiness in this life with a focus on the life to come. Father, we are so undeserving. We are miserable in our sin, but we are saved by grace. And that is the self-image that we need. May your word drive it deep into our hearts and our minds this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.